just a second here, making sure everything's working. All right. Welcome to the Q&A. 20 questions. First question today is about a pirate Bible. It's not a joke. I got this question actually from a number of people. One of them was Lewis Elrod, who says, have you heard of the pirate Bible? And yes, I have. Apparently it has been translated, he says, from the King James Version into pirate vernacular. That's question number one. Using artificial intelligence. It seems like a joke to me, Lewis says, but what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I actually have spent some time looking into the pirate Bible. <laughs> and it's... Um, it's nefarious. I kid you not. It's actually bad. Okay. Um, whether their intent is bad or not is almost irrelevant. The, the thing is it itself is, is negative. It's bad. It's causing harm and it will, uh, I believe cause harm. So I'm going to talk about it and how it's actually a Trojan horse for Mormonism. This is what I've, I haven't heard anybody discuss yet, but I want to share with you guys so you can be aware, um, because not everything that, that says it's Christian is actually going to be that. Unfortunately, uh, not everyone who calls Jesus Lord is, is actually a follower of Christ. So what is the pirate Bible? Well, let me show you guys. Here's, um, I'm going to look at some example passages, uh, four example passages from it. Then I'll talk about why I say it's a Trojan horse for Mormonism. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. I'm, well, I'll just show you. So here is the pirate Bible. Um, it's the Bible translated into pirate talk, at least their version of pirate talk using artificial intelligence. I kid you not. Uh, you can get it for about 22 bucks, I think, the price right there. And it was made 100% through AI. That means that they didn't go in and later change little verses here and there. Every single verse is a result of running through some algorithm that just automatically changes things. Uh, the entire Bible. I doubt the, the people who made this Bible even read it all after they did it. I would be surprised if they did. But yeah, that's that's how it is. Um, why does it exist? This is what they say. This is what they say on the website, the Pirate Bible site. The Pirate Bible is a full translation of the Bible, including Old and New Testaments. It was translated using a complex algorithm and artificial intelligence to create a realistic yet content accurate translation of the Holy Book. We hope it inspires you to engage with the Bible in new and meaningful ways. Well, they'll give you new ways. I don't know if they'll be meaningful, in all honesty. It's content accurate, they claim. Okay, they, they don't just say it there. They say this in other places as well. Here's another spot. Um, oh, let me let me get this. Let me get this picture up on screen for you here. Just going to take a second. Looks like I didn't have that one ready, but. I can, through my slow stalling, pull one up and put it up on your screen just like that. Okay. They say this translation was completed using entire, entirely using artificial intelligence and a fine-tuned algorithm. We worked hard to find a formula that produced true pirate-like speech while still preserving the meaning of the original text. That's important. That's two times on their site, and their site has very little info, but that's two times on their site where they claim they're preserving the original meaning. They're keeping the content pure. So yeah, it'll sound like, it'll basically be like a translation into any language. Pirates do, perhaps, I guess. <laughs> How much do we really know about pirates other than our Disney versions of them? Um, have their own sort of language. So the seafarer has like, you know, vernacular they use. We're just, we're just putting it in that vernacular. It's an accurate Bible. That's the claim. Let's look at some specific verses and we'll see where that is um, simply not true. So Luke 19.10, here's an example just to get you warmed up. Here's what they say. Um, R, the son of man has sailed the seas to find and rescue what was once gone. What verse is that? Well, it, it's the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. 
But instead it says R <laughs> for no reason. It just adds a random R in there, which of course R is an exclamation. It's an emotional exclamation that carries with it a certain feel and vibe that is not present in the original uh, or in the King James Version for that matter. Um, and it says the Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, right? He has sailed the seas. Well, here's a problem with this. First off, Jesus didn't sail the seas. He didn't. And and he focused his ministry there in Israel for a purpose. And biblically speaking, when you talk about sailing the seas, you're speaking of traveling outside the land of Israel. And so this actually relocates Jesus's ministry, his earthly ministry, to a place that didn't happen. Uh, but you get this, the ocean theme is here. Oh, but Mike, it's just, no, no, they said it was content accurate. Let's, let's hold them to the fire of their own claims. Here's the next one. This is uh, John 3.36. He who believes in the Son shall have everlasting life, but them who don't believe in the Son be doomed to a life without end, and the wrath of the Almighty be upon them. What are they doomed to? It says here, a life without end. But if you actually go to you know, any legitimate translation, John 3.36 says something different. Let me share it with you now. They shall not see life. That's what it says. Not doomed to a life without end. <laughs> this this flips it. This is like you're doomed to live forever. This is that's the pirate translation. Because an algorithm okay, artificial intelligence is not actually very intelligent. It may have capacities and abilities, but it's not actually in intelligent in the sense that you and you and me are okay where we actually can reason things through instead it just performs complex you know predetermined procedures but that's that's different than having actual intelligence and here at least for now at least my understanding of ai okay maybe maybe i'm wrong to some extent but certainly this ai is not actually intelligent um let's look at the next passage second corinthians five seventeen. it says if any scallywag comes to christ they be a brand new scoundrel. Gone be the old and everything be new. You guys you guys recognize this verse, okay? So it's not like it's so completely off that, that you can't even um, recognize it at all. But let me take you to it and share with you why this is a problem. And it has to do with what you become. It says here in the pirate version, you become a new scoundrel. A new scoundrel. Whereas in, um, you know, a more reliable version, it'll say if we're... Um, Oh, hold on. I got the wrong verse here. Let me scroll down just a little bit. Verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The idea of being a new creation in Christ is that you are made holy and, 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 he, and he makes you blameless before him, that you stand holy and blameless in love, as Ephesians talks about, that you are made new and this is a good new. This is a brand new, um, pure, stainless new that you've been made in Christ because he's given you his righteousness. He's made you born again into his kingdom as his child with with uh, all that that means. But the pirate version, the pirate version actually f just really flips this upside down and it says it makes you a brand new scoundrel. Scoundrels are bad things. Okay, like the Cambridge Dictionary says a scoundrel is, quote, a person, especially a man, who treats other people very badly and has no moral principles. So here the, the pirate version actually says that God makes you into a new evil person who has no moral principles, who treats others badly. That's, that's what it says. Why? Because it's a bad, the whole thing's a bad idea. Psalm 141, verse 3, there's the last one we'll look at. It says, Ahoy, keep a sharp lookout, O me hearties, 
I mean, Hardy's referring to what you're like the people you you care about that that are close to you that are in your circle, right? Keep a sharp lookout, Omi Hardy's a four, me mislinum, me mislinum. What is a mislinum? You guys go ahead, Google it. Take a second and Google mislinum. You will probably like me get zero results. Now I Google weird words all the time. I'm like researching. I'm looking up in dictionaries and in other language dictionaries and things like that all the time. But I never have noticed the word mislinum, and I've in Googling, I can't find it anywhere. But the, um, let me put it back on your screen just for a second. And I'll go to this so you guys can see why this is a problem. Um, it appears as though their translation algorithm made up a word that doesn't exist. <laughs> mislinum doesn't appear to be a word anywhere, as far as I can tell. If it is, someone correct me. Let me know, you guys. Now, um, this Ahoy, keep a sharp lookout, Omi Hardy's is actually from this verse. Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. It's speaking of the Lord here. Set a guard, O Lord. So, so God is the one being addressed, but in this passage, this prayer is being offered, here we go, to your Hardy's, to your buddies. And, and so keep a sharp lookout, my friends. A me mislinum, which should be something like my my mouth, um, but mislinum doesn't mean anything apparently. So there we go. That's that's the pirate Bible translation. I get that people might find it entertaining. Um, the, it is, however, a Trojan horse um, for a bad translation, uh, just confusion, losing the meaning of scripture, changing the meaning of scripture. Did they do it on purpose? Probably not. I don't care what they did it for. The problem is the product itself is, of course, flawed uh, dramatically. So. So some, some are going to respond to this before I tell you about the Mormon thing uh, by saying, but Mike, it's just for fun. This is just for fun. Ha ha. It's just ha ha fun stuff. Um, but I just want to say like, there's kind of like two groups of people here. Those who will, without me even explaining, they know that this is wrong on all counts and that this is, this is the, the thing you don't do for fun. Okay. Not everything you do for fun is okay. Then there's the people who, no matter how bad it is, they're just going to keep going. Yeah, but it was just for fun. And I'm not going to bother trying to explain because I honestly feel that there's like a certain person who just maybe me and you just don't think the same at all. Um, but if if the altering of the text of scripture to change and lose and even reverse the meaning of it in some places and the jokifying of serious, serious things, if, if that means nothing to you, then then we're just we just we're disagreeing on that, not on this actual translation. Scripture is sacred. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. Many people have shed their blood and died just so that you could have the Bible in your own language. And here is a money grab from a from a, a guy, I think it's Robert Ott, I think his name is, um, who is using artificial intelligence. And whatever he tells himself, whatever justifications he gives himself, well, people will get interested in the Bible in a new way. Um, whatever that is, this is really about $22 a copy. <laughs> this is what it is. It, this is a money-making thing. And publishers are dealing with this now. They're getting tons of AI-produced material. And not only that, but teachers as well. They're getting a lot of AI-produced content, and they're having to figure out what to do with it. And publishers are getting so many books sent to them that are created by AI that they're having to come up with ways of detecting this sort of thing because it's disrespectful um, to say nothing else. Now, when it comes to the Mormon aspect, let me show you this. This is what they say that they'll do if you opt if you buy this thing, you get checkmarked in to get a free copy of the King James Version Bible. A free copy, and you think, well, see, they're being generous, Mike. 
But these, see, the publisher of this and the seller of this Pirate Bible doesn't give you the free copy. It's brought to you by, quote, emissaries. And those emissaries are the Mormon, Mormon missionaries coming from the Church of Latter-day Saints, they call themselves. So let me read to you. It says, if you opt for a free Bible, the King James Version, along with your purchase of a Pirate Bible, we share your information with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You may see how they use your information here, and they give a website. LDS missionaries will contact you and share an, quote, uplifting message, unquote, when they hand deliver a copy of the Bible, King James Version. When opting into a free Bible, you're indicating that you are okay with LDS missionaries contacting you via phone, email, and or a physical visit to the address you enter for delivery. So the issue here is that the pirate Bible um, has a lot of major problems with it. Um, it appears to be a cheap, disrespectful money grab. But what's worse than that um, is that it opens the door then to unsuspecting, probably shallow people. Spiritually speaking, they're probably shallow because I don't know very many serious Christians that would be interested in this pi pirate Bible, uh, to introducing them to a false gospel through the Mormon church. So that's, that's a pretty big deal. This is a pretty significant issue on all counts. Um, if you're interested in more information on this, I have a whole playlist of videos for help on Mormonism, on the topic of Mormonism and the, the differences and the issues. I don't mean to attack Mormons. I don't despise or hate Mormons at all. I care about them and I want them to be taken away from this false prophet, Joseph Smith, and the lies that he has told that has entrapped large numbers of people into things that aren't true about the scriptures, about the history of, of the, the work of God and people, about the nature of Jesus Christ and how we get saved and the nature of, of, of eternal, eternal life and death and all those other things. There's so much that's there um, that... I have a playlist of videos down below. So I put it in the video description. You guys can check that out. But for now, we'll go to the next question because this is 20 questions. I'm Mike Winger. I'm here to try to do my best to help you learn to think biblically about everything. Doesn't mean I know everything. As those, those of you who've been watching for a while, you know, this is about learning a process where we keep going back to the text of scripture to check, is that what it really says? Is that what it really means? How does it apply into our lives? How do I take my hard question and bring the Bible to shine light on that issue? So let's go to question number two. And this one comes in from Cooper Ross, who says, is it a sin to use a social media service that often displays ungodly messages and music? Short form video services such as TikTok display videos directly on your feed rather than suggesting them to you. I will still often see ungodly videos even though I don't want to. Um, I, I don't have a hard and fast rule on this, uh, Cooper. So what I'm going to suggest is the b there are biblical principles. Um, so it's a good idea to put no wicked thing before yourself, to not to not place wicked things before your eyes. Uh, Job talks about this. It, he says, like, you know, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a young woman with lust. That, that's such a good reminder for us today in the, in the social media culture where it's so easy to gratify our lusts um, visually. Now, there's other scriptures that talk about like have nothing to do with the evil, with, with wicked deeds, but rather expose them. You know, be light, but don't have something to do with them. Don't be participating in them in some sense or enjoying the, the, the wickedness that's there. And this is something that I, I feel confronted with all the time, not just with social media, but with entertainment. Because entertainment ends up being a mixed bag where there's some degree of, of wickedness frequently, not always, but frequently in the things that you're enjoying and you might not be enjoying the wicked thing, but you're enjoying the thing that it's part of. And 
I honestly struggle with where to draw that ethical line so that I'm being obedient to Jesus Christ. There's sometimes where it's very obvious this is evil. Other times where it's, it, I, I'm not sure. Um, and um, and you're like, okay, well that, you know, even in Scripture, there's there's things put before us that are wicked, right? The the actions are wicked. Satan deceives Eve. We're reading about it. We're learning from it. We're observing it. But we're not delighting in that wickedness, that thing that's happening. And so there's, there's, that's the other side of the coin. And where, where, how do we balance all that? I'm not sure. Um, some principles that might help though are the, uh, the scripture says to make no provision for the flesh. So this doesn't mean, um, no Christian can use social media. I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't make provision for the flesh. So you need to ask yourself, Cooper, when you look at TikTok or you look at other things, I'm not on TikTok. Okay, so I've made my decision there. I have a I have a TikTok account. I have somebody else post to it. I don't even look at it. I don't open TikTok. I hate TikTok. <laughs> I have no desire to. Um, but but also the couple times I popped on there to look at it and see, it was just filled with stuff I'm like not going to put in front of myself. Now, but I've I've heard others say that um, that what happens if you follow uh, more accounts and you your usage history changes the stuff that you get put in front of you, the stuff you, you swipe away from and the stuff you um, that you like or whatever, however that works on TikTok. And maybe that's the case, so I don't know. But if TikTok is stumbling you, like if it's putting things before you, then you find yourself in sin and it's not something that has become easily avoidable, but is something that is more regular. Like this, is, this becomes making provision for the flesh. Then I think that that verse comes in, into play and you go, hey, for me, this thing is a problem. I'm going to, I'm going to push it away. And if every Christian follows that one rule, don't make provision for the flesh. It's going to change certain apps you use or certain things that you'll, and you, you, you'll do places you might even go. It's not that those things are always bad. It's that it's bad for you because it's, it is leading you into the flesh and you find yourself in sin as a direct sort of domino effect of partaking in that thing. So is that you, um, is that you, uh, there's other things where you say, Hey, it's one thing to see there's there's a, there's a wicked thing like say my example with scripture we have stories in the bible where bad things happen and i'm actually enjoying the story learning from the story but i'm not enjoying the bad thing i read about samson and his compromises and i'm bothered by it and i learn from it but it's not something i delight in when i view this entertainment when i view this social media um, and there's wicked things that i'm seeing am i delighting in them is another question because we should not rejoice or delight in anything wicked or evil or that sort of thing. So yeah, um, I hope those are some principles that help you, some biblical things to think about. And I don't have all the answers there, but I hope that gives you some positive directions. Number three, Jeff Wide or Weed says, you're a blessing. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Um, appreciate that. Uh, is Jesus presently on the throne or at the right hand of the throne? Is he king today? In what sense is he king? Proof text? How does the answer impact pre-mill eschatology? <clears throat> okay, I probably can't answer all that in just a topical, you know, quick Q&A, but let, let me work through some of your, your ideas here. So is Jesus presently on the throne or at the right hand of the throne? So I believe it was in Acts 7 where Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. So then someone would say, well, see, he's in heaven, but he's not on the throne. Yet there's passages that say that Jesus is seated in heavenly places he's seated we're seated with christ so he's seated on the throne and i think we're we're being too wooden in our understanding of these things i, I mean i've heard some people say the way you put these passages together is jesus is 
seated on the throne, generally speaking, and he stood at a moment to receive Stephen up into heaven. As Stephen's being martyred and he has a vision, he says, I see Christ. So Christ is standing to receive Stephen. This was a, a signal to Stephen and those who heard him that he was, though he was hated and, and murdered and killed by the crowd, he was received into glory by Jesus Christ. This is an example for martyrs everywhere. An example for anybody who faces rejection for Christ. Um, so then I've heard it explained that way, but then I'm thinking maybe this is a little too wooden because I'm like, well, let's see, is Jesus, what position is Jesus permanently in? And you see the problem with that reasoning? So our president is, you might say, seated in the White House, as in that is where his authority is, but that doesn't mean he's always sitting, although our current president is probably sitting quite a lot, <laughs> I imagine. Um, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean he has to always be sitting. Jesus doesn't have to always be in a physical posture of sitting in order to be seated on the throne in heaven. Rather, he is enthroned. He came down to earth. The Philippians talks about it. Hebrews does. Jesus had this like down up thing, right? He was in heaven, equal with God. He comes down to earth, takes on the form of a man, a bondservant. He lives perfectly. He dies for my sin and your sin because there was no other way for us to be reconciled to God than through justice being brought and through someone going in our place to pay for our sin. Jesus dies, pays for our sins, and then he gets resurrected and then finally exalted to the to the, to the the throne again. That is, he was on the throne. He came to earth as a servant. Now he's on the throne again. That's there. It doesn't mean there's like a specific physical position Jesus is permanently in. That, that would be my answer there is we're just pushing too wooden of an idea on there. Um, now you ask like, is he king today? Um, this gets into like pre-mill and post-mill debates. So a, a post-mill person might say, Mike, I'm post-mill because I think Jesus is on the throne now. And you're, you know, you're pre-mill because it's like you think he's going to come and reign at a future time, but I think he's on the throne now. And again, I think we're being too wooden here. I don't think that this should be the determining factor of whether you're pre-mill or post-mill. Premillennial people are not like, Jesus ain't on the throne today, right? Jesus has his kingdom, his king, this, okay, I'm not post-mill, I'm more pre-mill, so my understanding of this would be Jesus is on the throne, right? And this is metaphorically and sometimes physically speaking, and I, I won't get into all that, but at least metaphorically, Jesus is reigning right now, okay? He's king right now, but he is not the God of this age, and he is not while he is Lord of Lords, he is not the Lord that the world is currently submitting to. There will become a future time where the world actually submits to him. So in principle, Jesus is Lord, but he's not being submitted to by everybody because they're in rebellion against the Lord. Um, so I, I don't see how this affects my my uh, pre-mill eschatology um, at all. Anyway, Jeff, those are my answers. I know for some of you guys are like, wait, Mike, I need like a lot more data. Um, I have to juggle sometimes how much detail I'll get into. But I do have a video, I'll link down below on uh, five different views of eschatology or end times. And we can, I'll talk about pre-mill and post-mill and ah-mill and preterist, you know, different views that are there as well. I'll link that down below and you guys can check it out. There's the more detail you might be looking for. Let's go to question number four. Tyler Lasagna. Good name. Makes me hungry, but I'll just drink coffee instead. It says, what's up, Mike? Not much, Tyler. Not much is up. I will tell you guys something, a random thing that happened that I thought was hilarious. 
Um, I went to an event the other day for Stand to Reasons Ministry. Greg Kokel, who I appreciate very much and have learned a lot from, uh, you know, he started this ministry, Stand to Reason. And I know Jonathan Noyce, who's there, and Tim Barnett, who's over there, and Alan Schliemann, and these all the different people, and even like Danielle and Ocean, and different people that work in the office. I've, I've known the STR people, and so I love them, and they're great. And um, I went to an event to celebrate their 30-year anniversary, and Sean McDowell happened to be there. And I... <laughs> I'm kind of a dork. This is the kind of dork I am. Um, so I went to Sean McDowell and I was like, hey, Sean, uh, I thought it'd be funny if we switch name tags. So, so the whole night I was wearing the Sean McDowell name tag and he was wearing the Michael Winger, Mike Winger name tag. I don't know if anybody, how many people noticed it, but um, at one point I went up to get food and some of the people who follow STR are aware of my ministry. And there was a guy standing behind me in line to get dessert. It was, and he looks over at me and he goes, and he leans forward and he goes, oh, and he goes, man, for a second, I, I thought you looked like Mike Winger. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was funny. Um, okay, that's what's up. So Tyler, uh, your question is, I was wondering what will happen to the uncontacted tribes during the time of Jacob's trouble and without the ability to hear the gospel, what does judgment look like for them? Um, so... Uh, in general, okay, like separate ourselves just for a second from that, that like that like future time of, of, of great tribulation or of Jacob's trouble. And we'll just ask the question of what happens to people who've never heard the gospel? And the short answer is that they're they're only judged based on what they did know. Right. This that is a person. And it's my understanding. And I've, I've backed this up with a, a, a real thorough analysis in Scripture and a video I've got. I, I'll share down below as well. Called like, what about those who never hear the gospel? I'll link that video below as well in more detail. But my short answer is um, what they have been made aware of is that there is that there is a God. Creation tells us there's a God. So they're, they're accountable for knowing that there's a creator of all and that he's good and holy. And third thing that we've fallen short so that we're we're those who fall short of of him and his goodness so that we're sinners and if they respond in faith to what they do know right then i do think that they can they god may grant them access to grace and the examples of this are like name in the syrian um or or others who just had relatively little information about god in scripture who we see are actually saved so enoch we don't know how much Enoch knew about God, but it wasn't a whole lot compared to our full New Testament context with knowledge of Jesus and of his salvation plan. Um, people in the Old Testament, many saints, they might have had revelation of the, of the God of Israel, but they certainly didn't fully understand the cross or didn't understand it probably at all. But they just trusted in God. They just had faith in God. So I, I think that those people, um, w when they, here's the pivotal question there is, when they do encounter Christ in a future date, like say after they die, they will find that they they already were believing in God. They just didn't know the details. And then they will put their faith and trust in Christ. An example of this is Jesus' entire ministry. In the Gospel of John, a focus is on this topic. Okay, I'm going to blaze through something here real quick. But read the Gospel of John and ask yourself this. Is it true that people who respond rightly to God's revelation prior to Christ, but they've never met Christ, that they will, when they meet Christ, believe in Jesus? And the Gospel of John shows that this is the case, like that this is the theology we're getting from Scripture. Those who respond rightly to conscience and creation and all that, they will respond rightly to Jesus when they get knowledge of him. Why? Because they all, all along, they were having faith in the true God. They just didn't know all the details. Um, now, where people make a, a wrong turn on this issue, I believe, 
is when they start to go, oh, so like Buddhists and, and Muslims and like all these other religions are okay as long as they're being sincere. And I'll be like, wait, I never said any of that. I didn't say as long as you're sincere. Okay, sincerity does not save you. You could be sincere and wrong. Nor did I suggest you could be following a religion that is specifically counter to what God has revealed in creation and what God has shown us of himself in conscience and all that. So if I'm embracing a false religion, doesn't it show that I've actually been... In fact, that's what Romans 1 talks about. It says, yeah, that you embraced idols because you rejected the true God. That was what people did. So I shouldn't use this as a justification for like saying all paths lead to God. No, I'm only saying you can be ignorant of a lot of information and still be saved if you've responded rightly to what God has revealed to you. My whole video on this, what happens to those who never hear the gospel, I will link below and you guys can check it out. Um, now, when it comes to Jacob's trouble, it's the same. Uh, now, to an, you might be like, but that's a different season. Well, in a sense it is, but to any individual, like if you were alive when the Black Plague was going on, how is that so different than the time of Jacob's trouble for you individually? Globally, you know, it's going to be worse. This this tribulation period will be worse, assuming that I, I'm right, that it's a we're, it's still coming in the future, um, that that's going to be worse than even the Black Plague was. But to you individually, you still got horrible things happened. Your whole town was falling apart and then you died. Or, you know, when some army came in and just slaughtered the people of your village, like that was... For you, that was not really that much different than a tribulation individually. And God judges us individually. I do, however, think there'll be a lot of light going on around the world as far as the gospel goes during that time. I think a lot of people will be, will be getting saved. And there'll be a lot of uh, ministry that happens during that time. And so I'm very hopeful about that. Let's go to question five. Leisurely Luke says, hey, Pastor Mike Winger, what are your thoughts on Christians playing violent video games like Call of Duty or Doom? At what point does it become a question of conscience versus it's just wrong? <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know that I have the right answer for you on this. Um, I generally... Let me let me back up and see why. Okay, I'm I'm a lot I'm probably softer on this than a lot of other people. Violent video games, and um, let me give you an example. Uh, is it wrong for kids to get like sticks? Or me? I'll give you an example. Me and my cousin, we used to when we were at my grandparents' house, they had these trees with the with the long thin bark that would kind of peel off the tree and then curl up, and we would grab these and we'd use them as swords. Right. So we'd be whacking each other and stabbing each other. That hurt, actually, because those things, they would fall apart easy. But man, when you stabbed it, that hurt. We pretended to kill each other and it was great fun. In fact, I did all sorts of games like that growing up. You know, we, you know, the whole like cops and robbers thing where, you know, you're, you're, you're pretending to shoot people. You're pretending to have like powers, like some sort of comic book character and like blow them up and, um, we, we did this all the time. We would get squirt guns and the squirt guns are guns. You're pretending to shoot people. And I don't have any pain in my conscience about that. I don't think it's exactly malicious. I think it's a type of competitive play that is, in my mind, there's not a problem with it. Now, what about video games, violent video games? This is a video game version of the same thing, only it's not just your imagination. There's actual graphic portrayals of those things. And so to me, I separate um, 
into different categories. Okay, this is my own understanding. You guys are, please, please, I'm going to say judge me on this, but judge my, what I'm suggesting to you. Try to think through it. Um, and I'll share a, a one biblical uh, point on this in a minute. But I separate these into categories. There's, there's violence, there's gore, and then there's uh, the pursuit of evil. Okay, these are three things to me. Violence, I don't really have a problem with. Um, I mean, in video games. <laughs> Obviously, just someone's just violent physically. That's a different issue. Um, but violence in video games, I don't really have a problem with in the same sense that kids pretending to play, pretending to play in, in violent ways is part of normal play. And it does perhaps prepare people for certain difficult situations that may come in life. That's being realistic, I think, but um, but it's also natural to us, and I don't I don't think necessarily evil. Um, the the issue of gore can be a little different. Gore can be sort of not just violent play, but sort of stepping into this realm of delight in um, something that it just feels different. Okay, like maybe I'm wrong on this, but it feels like there's a certain point where the gore can turn into delight in harm of others where there's there's something visceral and and it's tapping into something in the human desire where you just want to like i want to hurt people and that, that can be a little different and so how much gore is is this thing got in it versus say just violence there is a difference and the next one is intent to harm um and this is where video games or or play can be where you're actually your intent you're, you're the reason what you what you're enjoying about the game is that you're doing something wrong something that actually in, in normal life would be evil and you're pursuing that and so i'm more open to games where you're the good guy fighting evil than you're just a bad guy doing bad things and so that's what's the intent behind the play is the intent behind the play like you know i want to fight in an epic battle that's not inherently bad but what about I want to cause harm and hurt others and oppress others and and just destroy. Then it might be feeding something that's in, that's inappropriate in you. Now that this is a fluid, these are fluid categories, and you're gonna you're gonna have to like you know work through how to apply that into life. And and video games, the best and the funnest video games are often the worst ones in all reality, as far as like ratings and stuff like that and sales go. So maybe there's something that is tapping into in us maybe we, we need to we need to be thinking about those things um now i said i was going to mention a biblical thing to think about and that would be the um i guess two things one is that that war is a real thing that god even has his people prepared for even has them going into sometimes self-defense things like that sometimes war is wrong many times it's wrong sometimes both sides are wrong sometimes one side is wrong um but it's it's not as though Christians are to be total pacifists. What we aren't supposed to do, is my understanding, biblically, is use violence in pursuit of spreading the gospel. Like, I'm going to spread the gospel with the sword. That's not how it's spread. That's that's not how it functions. And that's not how Jesus spreads his kingdom on this earth. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight. Powerful, powerful statement. But that didn't mean that a centurion who got saved could no longer be a centurion. Or say a policeman who gets saved, who has to use violence in the pursuit of justice if he's doing his job the right way, that he can't do that anymore because he's a Christian. Okay, those things are not true. This, this so violence is not inherently evil. It's not always bad, 
and you can do violence in a good way. So then we shouldn't rule it out entirely. The other thing is that the Bible doesn't handle violence the way it handles, say, sexual immorality or just even even proper sexual relations. When Adam and Eve get together physically, it's just Adam knew Eve. It uses a euphemism. This is pretty consistent. When the Bible talks about those sorts of things, it's not that the Bible's sheepish about it or ashamed of it. It's rather that it's it's like sacred, but it's not the kind of thing you put on display for others. It's private. So it speaks in euphemisms about physical intimacy between, say, husband and wife. That's pretty standard. You don't get detailed descriptions. You know, when Dinah is is abused and forcefully taken by by men, we don't we don't read the details of that event. But the way the Bible handles violence is different. Violence sometimes in the Bible is given descriptive details. So like when Ehud kills, you guys know the story, right? When Ehud is one of the judges and he goes in and he assassinates Eglon, this super fat king. And it says that he like goes in and he has the sword on a specific side of his, of his leg tied so that that's where they wouldn't check. And he takes the sword out and he's left-handed, right? So then he stabs him with his left hand. He tells him, I got a message from God for you. And the Bible gives you the details. It doesn't just say, and he slew Eglon. It says he stabbed him and the sword went all the way into this big chubby dude's stomach and the entrails of the guy poured out onto the ground. Like you get these details you would never get if it was talking about something that the Bible's like, this is inherently not something we want to have people thinking about. We get JL with the tent peg, you know, there she is dealing with Sisera, the leader of the, the oppressive army against Israel at the time. And he runs into jail's house and her tent. And he's like, Hey, give me some water. And she's like, Oh, all I got is this uh, warm milk. <laughs> and, he, and then it makes him tired. So he takes a nap and she goes and with it, it says she went softly to him with a tent peg and drove the tent peg so hard that it pierced his head and went into the ground. Okay. This is a woman who's driven a lot of tent pegs and she knows what she's doing. We get details about these things. We get details about cutting the thumbs off of these kings. What I'm saying is the Bible's not sheepish about the violence side of things. If you read it, it's it's not that it's inherently bad to be descriptive or or thinking about violent things. It's contextually bad. So my attitude towards video games would be that: um, is it is it inherently bad or is this contextually bad? Um, is it the the type of gore where it's I'm I'm starting to delight in harm, um, which is not something I want to do. Um, am I pursuing justice in the course of the game or am I actually feeding into the desire for um, evil things in my own heart? Do I make rules for everybody on these issues? Um, not personally. I don't have those kinds of rules, but I have these principles that I, that if a Christian is serious about obeying Jesus with their gaming, then maybe they'll find these useful. Yeah. Let's take number six. Zaki Batula says... I came to Christianity around nine months ago. That's awesome. Very, that's more than awesome. I don't, there isn't a word for how wonderful that is. Um, and you said, you've been really struggling getting closer with God. You say, I'm 15 and I have problems with lust. How can I stop always falling back into sin through lusting? Uh, well, first thing I want to tell you is, Zachy, you're not alone. Okay. Like what you're experiencing is being experienced by guys your age who are very serious Christians who are very much committed to Christ. And they experience this all the time, just all the time. Okay. It's just a regular battle. We live in like our world today has more landmines for the lustful heart than any time in history. And you with just, just your cell phone or your, or whatever, you know, 
electronic devices you've got, along with the culture that is just perverted, more perverted than ever before when it comes to sexual things. We, at least ever ever in my lifetime, and certainly probably ever in, in the last thousand years, our culture is so, so messed up, and your generation is getting the brunt end of it. So what I want to say is, um, what you're experiencing, don't think you're disqualified because you're going through this battle. This is a battle that, that countless people in your age right now are going through just as bad, just as bad. What do you do about it? Well, so you, you do a few things. One is you remember that you cling to Jesus through grace. Let me, let me give you a verse on this. Romans five. I love, I love this passage. <clears throat> it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, right? You've been justified by faith. It means I, my justification is that I'm God looks at me and he sees me as as right with him, righteous before him. So I'm I'm justified. I'm I'm righteous effectively before God. Um so you've been justified by faith. That means that you didn't do any works for it. You just got it freely by faith. That's how you got saved. Remember when months ago you gave your life to Christ, you trusted in him nine months ago, and you were like, I'm saved, I'm clean, my sins are washed away. That was completely by faith. You didn't earn it. So because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You, through Jesus, you have peace with God. It's not through your good works. It's not through your perfect behavior. It's through his forgiveness and grace towards you. Of course, you don't want to keep sinning. Of course, you want to repent of sin. And I'll talk about that in a second. But but you stand by grace. And that's the next verse. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You are not only saved in grace, you stand in grace. You stand, what does that mean? It means you, you, you start with grace and you finish with grace. You begin with grace, just forgiveness, and you continue your, your, your relationship with God, your forgiveness. It's secured every day, every moment by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the love of God, and not by your good works. This is a beautiful thing. How you started, free grace, total forgiveness, just God giving you righteousness, his righteousness, and clothing you with it. That's how you continue, and that's how you'll enter heaven. Um, now, it's it's true that there are some people who are fake Christians, you know, and, and you should know whether you're that or not. Hopefully, you're, you know in your heart, like, no, I, I really, I trust Christ. Um, and they're going to use this grace as an excuse to go and just keep on sinning all they want. But for the But for the rest of us, those who aren't in that boat, we need to be knowledgeable of God's grace at all times or else we will lose heart because the minute you think you're earning it, the minute you think you have to be good enough for salvation, that we're good because of salvation. We're not good for salvation. There's a big difference. Um, so here's a few things I want to share with you then uh, in addition to that, which is uh, repent a lot frequently. And what I mean by this is you may be like, boy, I just yesterday I repented and then today I stumbled and, and sinned again and I'm so ashamed and embarrassed. But repent right at that moment. Don't wait till you feel better. Stop right there and be like, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent of that. I want to have the right attitude. I want to follow Jesus Christ. I trust in you and I turn from that thing. Um, do this frequently. I don't care how many times. Jesus tells an interesting story when, when uh, or gives an interesting answer to a question when Peter's like, hey, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus is like, seven times 70, or he tells him, um, if, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, in a day, and seven times comes to you and says, I repent, then forgive him. Now that is a big challenge to forgive someone who comes to you that frequently. But imagine this, God never asks you to forgive more than he does. 
That's encouraging, isn't it? So repent frequently of those issues so that you can keep your heart closer to the Lord because the longer you stay in a sinful state, the further and further your heart moves from God. The next thing I would suggest is this. Don't fight sin when it's at its worst. Fight it at the beginning. It's easy to put out a small fire, right? You start a little, you've probably played with fire. You're a boy. I'm a boy, right? I've played with fire. Um, and uh, and when, it, when it's real little, it's easy to put out. But if you wait a little bit too long, it just gets impossible to deal with and you can have a real problem. So sin is like a fire. Our flesh, our sinful desires is like a fire within us. When you first think like, oh, that girl's cute. And then you start thinking a little bit about that at that moment. If you say, oh, Lord, it's fine that she's pretty. It's fine that I noticed that, but but I don't want my heart to keep dwelling on that, Father. He, keep me close to you. Let me just open the scripture, think about the word of God. Let me put on a Bible study. Let me just kind of control where my mind goes right now. But if you don't do that and you start dwelling on those things or you, you linger on that picture or you start searching for things, that starts as a small fire, but then you're feeding it, you're giving it fuel and it gets really big and bad. And then you think, well, now I need to fight it before I like complete the sin. I need to fight this thing. But you're fighting it way too late, and so it's a much bigger battle than you're ready for. Fight sin early on. Fight sin at the first possible moment you're tempted, and you will find a lot of victory. In addition to that, don't put anything before yourself intentionally that leads towards lust, that leads towards sin. Right? But but again, cling to God's grace. Th those are my advice, uh, advices, <clears throat> Ad advice-icles you think about all right uh number seven chubbs smith says if at the end of days the protestant belief is proven true would catholics be saved conversely if catholicism turns out to be the truth would protestants be saved that's a challenging one um so i obviously believe that uh catholicism as as much as it is the, the the fundamental differences between Catholicism and say Protestant views, you know, that Catholicism is wrong. And I've got videos and stuff on that. I'll link some stuff below. But <clears throat> um but you know, are Catholics saved? Now I, I've I've heard this question asked for two reasons. Um one, just genuine concern. And that's I'm assuming that's how you're asking it. I've also heard it asked for another reason, which is as like a test. And I've heard someone ask this, and I'm and this is my perception. I think what was going on in their head was I'm going to ask the Christians, the, the Protestants, um, are Catholics saved? And if they say no, then that's a mark against them. And I'm going to ask the Catholics, are Protestants saved? And if they say no, it's a mark against them. But whichever group says yes, that's the group I like more. They're the nicer group. They're the more loving and embracing group. And so they, I'm, I'm more likely to join them. <laughs> and so, so in that sense, you know, you should just join a universalist church because they say yes to everybody. Um, but this is not how we should determine truth. Whoever affirms the salvation of the largest number of people, I'm just, I'm just going to call them the group I'm going to join. So I, I would say that's a real problem to have that view. Um, that being said, are, are Catholics saved? I think lots of Catholics are saved. I have a different question I usually ask, which is, does the gospel of Catholicism save? Now it's not about people, is it? It's about a teaching. Now, lots of Catholics aren't very Catholic. The majority of U.S. Catholics are pro-abortion. Yet Catholicism, and I agree with Catholicism here, is staunchly against abortion. Totally against abortion. A lot of Catholics are okay with divorce, but Catholicism is certainly not. So Catholics and Catholicism are two different things. Just like 
there's Protestant theology, yet there's plenty of Protestants that believe all kinds of wacky, weird things. So are Protestants saved? Maybe, right? Like depends on whether their true trust and faith is in Christ. Are Catholics saved? Maybe, whether their true trust and faith is in Jesus Christ. If they're believing in their works, that their works are contributing to their salvation, then I think they're probably not saved. I think that they're substituting their filthy rags with Christ's righteousness and that, that the warnings of the book of Galatians extend to them. And that's not uh, something like my personal negative attitude. I'm just trying to analyze scripture and apply it. Um, Catholicism, its actual theology, I think, deters from the gospel in a way that at least I feel very, I, I don't feel confident saying that it's, that the Catholic gospel actually saves because it involves all sorts of things like say, and here's what lots of Catholics don't know, so I wouldn't put this on Catholics, but the gospel itself, it involves things like paying for your own sins in purgatory. Not just Jesus paying, but you paying for your sins in purgatory, that you have expiatory suffering in purgatory. That is real Catholic theology, although lots of Catholics don't have that view. Even some Catholic apologists will be like, no, that's not purgatory. We don't really know what purgatory... All of a sudden, they don't know what anything is. But if you really look at the actual stuff, like that's what it means. Um, the doctrine of justification, it includes you meriting grace through your works. You merit, here's a quote from Trent, right? The infallible supposedly counsel of Trent, you merit an increase of grace. Okay, now they, they're going to then say, yeah, but but you only merit grace by grace. But see, here's where I say Romans 11, 6 comes in and says, this is, this is an impossible combination. Let me look at the passage here. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. So you didn't merit it. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that the Roman Catholic version of grace is becomes a word that loses its meaning when it when it comes to saying that you can merit an increase of grace. And now there's some, I've heard of various uh, explanations. Some modern Catholic apologists are like, hey, well, it doesn't mean that. There's two different kinds of merit, and there's condign merit and congruous merit and all this. But when I actually study the Council of Trent, I go, I don't think that there are, there is here in the Council I think you're saying this, and guess what? You're not. You're not the Council of Trent, right? Council of Trent combined with Vatican I, you have a statement about justification that runs counter to the nature of the gospel, plus Vatican I, you have a statement that says that you can never interpret councils other than how they were originally meant to be interpreted. So if I look at a, a modern apologist and I go, I get what you're doing here, but if Catholicism is true, your formula doesn't work. We need to actually... Like, if I'm going to be Catholic, I'm not going to trust just some rando apologist who has no authority in Catholicism. I'm going to trust the authorities, which is these these um, councils. There's my answer on that. Um, I'll, I'll link my playlist below. I hope I give you something to think about. I wish with all my heart I could say that the gospel of Catholicism saves. And if I ever change my mind, if I'm ever shown to be wrong and I go, wow, look, I, I didn't see this part of it. I will happily make content telling everybody, good news, Catholicism has a, a solid and intact gospel message. I wish it did. I know lots of people that say it does. Um, but when I've looked at it, it doesn't seem to be the case. And I want you to think for a second in Galatians, when Paul wrote to Galatia, he warned them that they were in eternal danger because of what they had done with the gospel. How easy would it have been for him to be like, you know what? It's all right. We can just agree to disagree on these issues. It's fine. Everybody's pretty much on the same page for the most part. We're just arguing over definitions of words, right? 
But Paul's like, no, no, this is about the truth of the gospel. This is about the grace of Christ being preserved. As far as I know, that is, uh, the grace of Christ is threatened by Roman Catholic teaching. And so I, I can do nothing, but um, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But if I can do nothing but put my foot down where I believe it, it it's supposed to be based on scripture. Yeah. So um, it, on you said if, you know, if Catholicism turns out to be the truth, would Protestants be saved? That's actually a bit challenging. Um, if you asked me that 500 years ago, the answer is no. Protestants are going to hell. Okay. That's what anathema means, going through the councils and the history of the church. You ask Catholics today, many of them are like, no, Vatican II. Now we're, we're they're separated brethren. Okay. But then we have two sort of things going on in Catholicism, because guess what? Catholicism is not really infallible and it does change over time. You have statements that would indicate Protestants are genuinely, they're not saved. Okay. You're Protestant. You're, 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 you're not separate brethren. You're anathema, right? Um, but then you have statements later on, Vatican II comes around and really it's, it seems like it's a liberal shift in the Catholic church that produced Vatican II. And so it affirms very vaguely seems to affirm Protestants can be saved. Which one do you take? Okay, well, at least it's enshrined in a supposedly infallible council. Um, Vatican II came and it was so controversial that many people left the Catholic Church because of it. They said, no, this is just a contradiction of what we said before. Others say, no, it's not a contradiction. It's just a further explanation. And it's very pastoral. Vatican II is pastoral. And so it's not meant to be taken in like, you know, as these really strong, clear statements. It's meant to be pastoral, by which they mean sort of murky, <laughs> I guess. Um, I I don't know how to answer this question because within the infallible documents of the church, it seems that I am both condemned and affirmed as a, as a uh, separated brother. So what do you do with that? I don't know. Um, let's go to the next question. Question number eight. Um, and by the way, we've got all the questions. 20 questions are all in. I'm just going to do my best to answer them and give you guys some stuff to think about. So this is an anonymous question on the book of Proverbs. All right. Proverbs 16:31, it says, long life is the reward of the righteous. But in Philippians 1:23, Paul says, I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. So how is long life a blessing? Um, let's look at these two verses. Proverbs 16, 31. Um, did I get something wrong? Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. That's ESV. Uh, there's New King James. NIV. RSV. Hmm. I don't know which translation you might be looking at. Um. Oh, huh. I wonder if I could, I'd like to find the verse. Yeah, maybe it was just a, a wrong verse, or maybe I can't find it in the translation that you're referring to. Proverbs 3, 2 says, for length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. Speaking of, of uh, following the things that your, your parents teach you, um, Ephesians talks about that as well. But let me just, for the sake of the question, in case I'm missing something here, I'll, I'll grant that we have a, a text of scripture that says long life is the reward of the righteous. 
and it's in the book of Proverbs. And then we have Philippians um, 1.23. Paul talks about his difficulty with, with, with wanting to go to be with Jesus versus wanting to stay here on this earth and be of benefit to others. And I'll back up a little bit and we'll read some context. He says, um, and remember, he's in prison as he writes Philippians. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified. Hold on. I'll come back to that. Okay, Christ will be magnified um, in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. Like, which one would I pick if I had my choice? For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. And he goes on. Um, it's torn between... Uh, you know, because Paul's basically under threat of death frequently. And he's torn between going on living versus like, boy, I almost just wish I would just be martyred for Christ that I could just be with him. Notice he doesn't want to be martyred so he can like have a badge of honor. He doesn't want to be martyred because he's like depressed and just wants to end his life. He purely wants to just be with Jesus. And he knows it's far better than every day he's ever had on earth. The best day on earth is nothing compared to being in the presence of Christ. And he's torn. So you're like, okay, well, how does that work with them? Um, and... Let's see. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you there. There's with this other verse. Um so and yeah, this doesn't say at least in the translations that I found quite what you were looking at. So you, it's probably just a translation issue. Um at any rate, how do you square this with the idea that um that there's long life is a, is a reward, a, you know, blessing, something that people get when they live rightly? Well, Proverbs does talk about this. Um, long life is a blessing, especially if you aren't having your life shortened because of doing bad things. So someone abuses drugs and then they die young. Okay, well, long life would have been the reward of the person had they done right things. Um, but in addition, I don't think that Paul would consider him dying at that age to be a shortening of his life as much as a shortening of his ministry. Because once you're in Christ, once you look at this in light of Christ, his righteousness becomes the thing that rewards me with eternally long life. And so I do have eternally long, eternal life because of the righteousness of Christ. And so I would look at those things as being the fulfillment of that, being Christ giving me righteousness that then results in me having eternal life. Um, oh, it's the Good News Translation. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate you helping me get clarity there. Yeah, Good News Translation. So the Good News Translation has it that way. Um, Interesting. I don't know if I would say it's accurate, but I guess that's a different thing that I haven't spent time on. Um, yeah, so Paul here, when he says he wants to depart and be with Christ, he doesn't mean I want my life to end. He ultimately means he wants to move into eternal life. He wants more life. He wants the better life. And so I, I wouldn't see these as being in conflict at all. Let's look at the next question. Um, Liubin says... Given that Ezekiel's temple prophecy with its strict measurements was written before the second temple was built, why didn't the second temple get built to those specifications? Um, interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Why didn't they build it to those specifications? Um, well, partly I'd imagine, I'm just going to guess here. I can only guess that 
part of the reason is simply that Ezekiel's temple is is so big. It's like a mile by a mile, right? The the the, the square it's a square mile. This this the size of the the area, and they're building this temple on or in Jerusalem. They also had limited resources. When the second temple was first built, you read about Nehemiah and Ezra, they're just gathering like whoever's willing to show up to build a temple. And the, t- the building was rough and they had opponents and they had re- you know not enough finances and they had limited resources, limited abilities, um, lots of limitations. And so that after the temple was built, there was people complaining about it. You read about this in Nehemiah and Ezra and they're like, oh man, the old temple was so much better than this. So they just did what they could. They did what they could. Later on, uh, Herod did a lot of additions and he grew the temple and built it larger. And so then they, even because, uh, you know, Jerusalem's on a mountaintop. So then they expanded the size of the, the mountaintop with platforms and stuff so they could build the temple even bigger. And so they wanted to make it bigger and better and all that. Still not the size of Ezekiel's, but much larger. Yeah. Um, so... Ezekiel's temple, if it's literal, if the size is literal, then, and it's not just meant to be like a metaphor for how God is going to sort of, I, I don't have an opinion on this. I'm not, I'm just, I'm just unsettled in my opinions, my just, my conclusions on Ezekiel's temple. Um, if it's meant to be metaphorical, it's, it's size is because God's bringing all the kingdoms in. It's not just for Jerusalem. It's not just for Israel. It's for all people. They're all going to be welcomed into the house of God. And it's speaking kind of like of, of what Jesus builds in the church. Um, but there's an awful lot of detail for it to be taken as a metaphor. So if it's taken as more literal, then we're looking at a third temple or, a, or even a fourth temple, because there may be a, an interim, a third temple that comes, um, that ends up being destroyed. And then a final like millennial temple, this temple in the millennial kingdom, which again is huge, partly because it's inviting people from all of, all around the world to commemorate what Christ has done, not just for Israel. Um, Interesting things to think about. Let's go to question number 10. Tyler Shastine says, how should I understand 1 John 3 when it talks about those who abide in Christ no longer sinning, even as someone who continues to sin? Um, I will say, Tyler, I'm with you on that. I continue to sin. Um, and so we're in the same boat. Let's read it. I'm going to have to read a, a, a chunk of it here, but... You guys aren't going to complain. You're going to read a lot of the Bible. Is that allowed? <laughs> uh, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has thus hopes who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Really interesting verse. I spent time on that. Who's the he right there? Is it us? We 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 are pure in Christ, so we purify ourselves to conform to who he's he's called us to be and made us. Interesting. Um verse four, everyone who pra- who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, we're down here, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. This is saying that um, there is an automatic effect of salvation that starts to impact your life and your behavior such that you do not just keep on sinning. But what I read you is the ESV, which highlights something that is in the Greek. And that's this word practice of sinning. Whereas, say, New King James, it would read differently. It would say, um, he who practices righteousness, um, he who sins is of the devil. Like, if you sin, you're of the devil. Or it'll say, um, whoever abides in him does not sin. And it, it sounds more matter of fact and plain, like you simply never sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him, implying that Christians simply never sin. And I've only heard two responses to this, if you take it that way. One is to go for sinless perfectionism and say, yes, I have not sinned since I've been saved. I've never sinned. Um, nobody believes you. <laughs> the fact that you believe yourself is unfortunate. That's, that's not true. Um, the other side, some people will go, is they'll say, ah, I've sinned, but it wasn't me. It was my flesh sinning. So that didn't count. So so in this sense, the Christian's behavior is separated into two categories. When, when I do something in the flesh, it's not really me. It's the flesh. And then they'll kind of sort of appeal to Romans 7 there. It'll take things a little bit, a little bit out of what Paul's talking about, I think. Um, and they'll say, ah, so when I sin, it's not me, it's my flesh. And so I'm in the spirit when I'm in the spirit, I never sin. And so then that's the two ways they'll handle that. If they take it as a real strict, at least two ways that I'm aware of, you know, Christians never sin, but the Greek does have different tenses. And there is a tense here in, in the verb that talks about it being continual or ongoing. And so, um, hence the ESV translation, which says, practices sin practices law lawlessness because they're trying to get this word the word practices is not in the greek it's the idea of um uh keep on or continually sinning that is there in the word sin right it, it's this this tense of an ongoing regular behavior so what we're getting then from first john is that the children of god have an internal work of god in their lives this, 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 this sort of the, the seed, the, the, the adoption, the, the nature that tr of transformation that happens in our lives from God. And this impacts the way we live. Does it mean you never sin? No. Now, how do you know we should go this way with first John? How do we know that the ESV gets it right? And the new King James perhaps is leaving out a nuance that's important. Well, we'll just back up first John chapter two, where he says the following. My little children, I'm writing things, these things to you so that you may not sin. Wait, what? If, if Christians just don't sin, you don't have to write anything to me to keep me from sinning, but he's writing it to you. So you won't sin. Why? Because he wants you to know that sin is bad because he knows that you're tempted to sin, that you still have sin issues, even as a Christian. And to, to show you even further, he says, but if anyone does sin, that's you and me, right? We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So there's something to do if you sin, you appeal to Jesus Christ. So again, he doesn't mean sinlessness. He means Christians who are genuine don't just live on in sin. Um, and let me talk more about that in a second, but we'll just read some more here. So Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Then he starts to move on to that point, right? Like if you 
If you um, say you know Jesus, but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. First John is very challenging when it comes to this topic for a lot of believers. He he speaks in very strong terms, but if you're, I think if you're going to understand what First John is saying about sin, you have to take everything he says or you will misunderstand it. He's like, hey, don't sin, but if you do sin, and guess what? We all sin, but don't just keep on sinning and living in sin because if you don't really follow Jesus, you just live a lifestyle of rebellion against him, you're not really his child. That's the cut and dry of it. Now, what about people that are in this? Okay, there's someone who lives a total lifestyle, total rebellion against Christ. They're not really his child because they show it through their life. There's someone who's living real strong obedience to Jesus. And you're like, boy, I'm very confident they're Christians. What about the person who has the mixed bag? They seem to have genuine faith, but they also have a lot of failure. But they're not doing, like if they weren't Christians or if they weren't saying their life would look much worse even but they still deal with sin. That person needs to appeal to Jesus. If you sin, you need to trust in Christ. But it can they can be in this gray area, I've talked about this many times, where me on the outside, I don't know if they're genuinely saved or not. I will usually give them the benefit of the doubt, but I will always call them towards repentance, call them towards salvation, because I want to know they're saved. I don't consider it my job to know whether everyone's Christian or not, but I consider it my job to know whether I'm a Christian or not. And that's what you need to do. You need to know that you're really genuinely a Christian. It's not your job to figure everybody else out. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Jesus says, there was a farmer, he sows good good seed into the soil, and while he sleeps, the enemy comes and he sows tares amongst the wheat. Tares are something you don't want to eat. It's something that you, it looks like wheat up until it buds. So it, it looks similar. Well, when the when the Jesus tells a story, when the wheat finally buds, they realize, wait, some of those are tares. Somebody put tares. And he's like, yes, an enemy did this. Okay, so this is Satan. Satan sows into the church fake Christians. So they go, what do we do? Do we go in and pull out all the fake ones? Jesus says, leave them alone until the time of harvest, lest you uproot the wheat with the tares. Application for you today. It is not your job to try to pull out and point out and deal with every false Christian. Leave it. Because while trying to go, you don't live godly enough, I think you're a fake Christian, you may pull up wheat because maybe you're just wrong. Now, if someone is living in gross immorality that's open, that's unrepentant, that's affecting the church, you may excommunicate them. The church may say, we're not we're not saying you're not saved. We're kicking you out of the church because you cannot fellowship with us because this sin is going to affect others. This sin is going to hurt other people. And we're hoping and praying for your salvation in the final day and that you'll take this as a correction. All right, we're, we're not actually trying to say who's real and who's not real. We're, we're trying to protect people. Um, different move. All right. Number 11, lady of the needles says this question comes from my sister, Sherry, who watches, but can't submit a question in Leviticus one, nine, why were only the legs and entrails washed before burning? Is this cultural? Oh, I may not know the answer to this question. Sherry, I'm glad you were able to get a question in. I know it doesn't work for a lot of you. You watch, most of you guys don't watch live. Most of you watch after. Um, I do what I can. I can't answer everybody at all times. So I I, I'm, I hear you. It's hard when you can't get a question in. Um, I just try to be as available as I'm able. Um, but Leviticus 1.9, uh, we, need, we need to back up a little bit. We're talking here about a, a specific sacrifice. So let's back up to the beginning of the chapter. The law of burnt offerings. Leviticus 
chapter one. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to them, the people of Israel, uh, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, before I venture a, a guess at the answer to this question, because I don't know it, um, uh, I'm going to say I actually have a video on the Levitical offerings and how they are a picture of Christ. And for those of you who, um, in our culture, we're so separated from the process of dealing and processing animals that um, we react oddly to this. It's kind of like someone who's never had seafood and then they go to Japan or something and they're like seeing all this seafood stuff and they're like, Aah! and they're, you know, they're, they have an issue they shouldn't have. <laughs> We're like this with um, offerings in the Old Testament. Most humans throughout history would not, you know, flinch or have a problem with the idea of these offerings taking place. Um, in many cases, they actually ate a lot of the food that was offered, but it was still offered to God. And anyway, a lot can be said there, but the if you're squeamish about the offerings, uh, recognize this, that they're a picture ultimately of Christ. They are a picture of loss and of suffering, um, of sacrifice, because Jesus died for our sins. And it's not meant to be something that feels all warm and fuzzy. It's also meant to be something that shows you the gravity, the horror of the cross. And so we see this even in the even in the offerings. But I have a video I'll link below where I go through how the Levitical offerings, how the different offerings in the book of Levit Leviticus point to Jesus. And it's a, it's amazing stuff. Okay, it's not me. It's the word of God. You look at Hebrews and you look at all these different places and it's like, dude, Leviticus is about Jesus. It's not just about um, like how priests are to handle animals and stuff like that. It's, it's, it points to Jesus. It's amazing. Um, so your, your question is, hey, why are they washing the entrails? They, it didn't say that they washed these other body parts. They washed the entrails. My best guess, and I'm just guessing, I would have to look into it more, but since I don't have a good answer, I'll just give you a possible answer, is that this may have been a sanitary thing. Um, washing the entrails, and then it means that then those who are handling them are not getting as much stuff on them that might be on the entrails. Entrails are exactly what they sound like. They're entrails. And so, yeah, you, you, maybe maybe there's a reason for that that has to do with sanitary things. That may be the case. Um, it may also be a cultural thing that giving somebody, un, you know, you putting unwashed entrails, it's almost like we don't care as much about what we're offering to God right now. Like there's like a, 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 a lack of a sacredness in the attitude towards God in that kind of an offering. That may be the case as well. Um, otherwise, I... Um, I don't know. Um, his entrails and his legs he shall wash with water. Um, yeah. 
good question. Somebody else in the audience, you probably know, and you're typing a comment going, oh, it's because of this, Mike. And I'm going to heart that comment if I see it. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next question. Number 12, Zoe Abundance says, most of the older girls and young women at our church are wearing crop tops to church. I find this obviously inappropriate for church and in general, but don't want to be legalistic. Thoughts? Um, uh, so biblically speaking... We, we don't have clear rules about what modesty looks like as far as like not exposing too much skin. However, um, if you actually do a study on this, you will find that exposing the navel, the belly is something that is seen as at least, at least in the biblical times, it was something that they weren't going to do, that they would see this as immodest, as an inappropriate for just doing it randomly out in public. Um, I'm, I'm one of those who with you would think that this is inappropriate. However, I do not think that the girls who are doing it are therefore trying to be seductive and they're trying to stumble other people. I think girls have entirely cultural or selfish reasons for wearing clothes like that. Uh, and I could be wrong girls. Tell me your opinions here. Okay. In my understanding, a girl wears those things because she doesn't want to feel embarrassed because she's got doesn't have the cool clothes or whatever or because she f just doesn't see this as seductive at all she's like i know that i'm not trying to be seductive i just think i want to look okay in this i like this it's comfortable it's it's casual it's whatever um i don't think they're usually trying to be seductive i think girls more often dress for other girls than they do for guys when it comes to that sort of thing um i could be wrong on on some of those things that's my my years of life and what I've learned or learned wrongly, <laughs> all being there. Uh, that being said, while I would never blame a girl for a man's lust, okay, every man needs to deal with his own lust, I would say that that doesn't mean it's okay for her to be immodest in her dress. And I would blame her for her immodesty. And I wouldn't necessarily say she's doing it on purpose, right? There's plenty of girls who, Christian ladies who are gonna go to the beach today in a bikini, thinking there's nothing wrong with it. They're wrong. <laughs> but if, if bikinis aren't immodest, then nothing is. <laughs> there's no such thing as immodest. Um, but they're completely, their conscience is totally clear. But you know, when Eve ate of the fruit, her conscience was clear too. She was deceived. And, and that I think is going on here is that our culture has, um, not only do we have a wrong view of modesty, we have no modesty. We, modesty is not a value in our culture. Modest dress, modest clothing, which would include not having overly rich looking clothing as well and shoes and jewelry and, and hairstyles, stuff like that, that are overly expensive. Um, that modesty affects all of those things, I think, biblically speaking. So yeah, I, I think I'm with you. Crop tops seem you know, if you were in biblical times, they would absolutely say that was immodest. Okay. We do not. Now you might say, well, we're in a different culture. Okay. We are in a different culture. That's true. But I'm in agreement that that's immodest. And I think, I think a lot of Christian men uh, would probably agree with that as well. And a lot of these same girls, when they get older, when they're mothers, when they're in their 30s and 40s, they're going to look back at the crop tops and feel the same way and be like, yeah, I just didn't get it. I just, I didn't, I, I wasn't malicious. I just wanted to be cute. I just wanted to wear what was in style. So yeah, um, I'm with you on it. Now you said you don't want to be judgmental. Look, we as Christians have to always live with each other while we're, we're all a bunch of, we're a mixed bag. You know, 
the groups of us as believers have all sorts of compromises at different times and in different ways. And if if you call out every time you see gossip and every time you see um, someone being rude and every time you see someone wearing something immodest, and if you make this your focus, it's going to distort you and you're going to become an unhealthy member of the body. There's a time and a place, okay? And, and not every issue is equal. And so if I had, you know, the right moment and the right and I was the right person for it, I might talk to a girl about something like that. But to be completely honest, knowing the culture I live in in California, I would probably just not worry about it for the most part um, and just worry about other more important things. Um, you know, if, if you think that I'm not being biblical there, um, let, me, let me put it this way. Um, Jesus walked around all day long with guys who made mistakes all day long. And if he had called out every sin, which it doesn't seem he did, if he called out every sin and every issue in every person, we, we don't have that example in scripture. It seems like he dealt with issues at the right moment, at the right time, and in the right way. And I think that we should have, we should be slow to speak, quick to hear. We should consider, we should, you know, if someone's caught up in sin, we should consider ourselves lest we're tempted. Galatians 6, consider yourself lest you are also tempted. Do it with a spirit of gentleness. Do it to restore them if it's an issue like that they actually have to be restored from and have wisdom on it. So what I try to do is have really high standards as a Christian because the Bible absolutely has the highest of standards of holiness, of, of, of morality, of goodness, of rightness. But it does not have me carrying those standards and placing them in each moment on everybody around me, but it has me walking in grace at every moment. I, I think that that's the example we see. Uh, Luke Meck <clears throat> says Galatians 5.20 uses witchcraft here. Here, let's, let's look at Galatians 5.20, then I'll read the rest of your question. Um, I'll back up a little bit. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Um, in, in some translations, it's witchcraft. Um, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, meaning this is not an exhaustive list. There's all sorts of other sins that aren't even included here. Okay, your question is, um, Galatians 5.20 uses witchcraft here. The word is only used two times in the Bible with the original, the origin word being where we get pharmacy medicine. Can you clarify? I grew up learning this was literal and still applies. Okay, when you say you grew up, it was learning, it was literal. I'm wondering if you think it meant, um, if you were being told that it was, um, it, it applied to pharmacies, to pharmaceuticals. So let me, let me go to this real quick. It's going to take me a second, but, um, the word is, uh, pharmakia, pharmakia, um, and... The other verse it's used in is Revelation 18.23. I want to share that with you guys. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. This is about judgment coming on, I think it was Babylon. Uh, For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, okay, or, or witchcraft. This is that word pharmakeia again. So what is pharmakeia? Um, it, it, now, it's true that the term itself is where we get our word pharmacy 
pharmakeia, pharmakia, pharmacy. We, we do actually get our English word pharmacy from this word, but don't be too simplistic about word words over time. So words change meaning over time. And just because we get an English word from something doesn't mean it meant that 2000 years ago. Right. It's talking about actual witchcraft. It's, it's not talking about medicine. It's not talking about prescription drugs or something like that. Now it's true. Here's, here's the, the, the like grain of truth that's in there. <clears throat> um, cultures and groups that dabble in witchcraft or um, shaman and stuff like that, they frequently use drugs as part of their practices of magic. Um, probably because it makes you feel like this magical thing is really happening. It's part of a deception that goes on. And also, many people have reported that drugs seem as though they open the doors to demonic things in their lives. But I don't think that this is true of all drugs, of everything you can call a drug. If, if I take Advil, I'm actually taking a drug. I do not think Advil is opening me up to demonic things. If I take LSD, I think it very well may. Because these are very different things. So I don't think everything that can be labeled pharmacy or pharmaceutical is therefore magic or witchcraft. This is a, a clumsy, simple, overly simplistic evaluation. Back then, pharmacia, it meant sorcery, magic, witchcraft, that sort of thing. That's, that's what it meant, not something else. And um, you can see this when you look at, I'm, I'm, I, you know, you look at some uh, different resources on this stuff. The, did it talk about the use of drugs and potions, potions and spells? Yes, as they're related to the use of witchcraft not simply anything medicinal. So an example in scripture of this, of breaking that that sort of idea that all pharmaceuticals are therefore evil, is uh, Jesus telling uh, Timothy, Jesus, sorry, Paul telling Timothy that he needs to don't just, you know, drink water, have some wine as well for the sake of your stomach. He's doing this as like a medicinal type of thing. You know, Luke himself was a physician. We don't see that he repented of being a physician, even though we see people repent of their witchcraft and their magic. So I think what we need to do is we need to uh, separate use of drugs in a medicinal fashion that's proper and good versus use of drugs in a way that's meant to be like mind altering or um, bad in some way. Now, sometimes there's this gray area where you're like, wait, is this good or bad? And that's genuinely challenging to figure out. I'm just suggesting that there are these two categories and that I think that we, we shouldn't think pharmacia is where we get pharmacy, therefore pharmaceuticals are all witchcraft. That's, that's not a biblical idea. That's, that's not where they would have gone in scripture. And so I, I, if I got your question right, then that would be my answer to it. <clears throat> um, she's Moonlight, question number 14, says, how can I enjoy my singleness? I'm a young... Uh, young adult woman, I want to be in a relationship one day, but I want to be content where I am now. How can I grow closer to God during this time? Um, let me encourage you with something. You do not need to feel, single people out there, you don't need to feel um, that God replaces your desire for a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife more, more appropriately. God is not, doesn't have to replace that desire at all. Right? When Think about this. When God made Adam and Eve, he said it's good. But then, he, or when he made Adam, he said it was good, right? But he said, it's not good that man should be alone. Here's Adam. He's got God and it's not good for him to be alone without Eve. Now, this isn't just about his loneliness, his single. This is also about procreation because if, if Adam didn't have an Eve, 
there would be no offspring. So there was more about it that was not good than just sort of like, I want to be fulfilled by a relationship. I'm just suggesting saying I want to be married, I don't want to stay single is not is not the same as saying I'm discontent in my relationship with God. Okay, you, you could be totally content with the Lord and still desire to be married. Contentment is sometimes you saying, I would rather have this be the situation, but I will trust God's plan for my life. I will still be satisfied in him. And I think that that's a healthy thing. Um, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7 where he's like, yes, he lifts up singleness. Singleness is great for the sake of serving the kingdom. You can serve wholeheartedly. You can serve. I, I, I met a missionary once in Utah. He was a single man who was, I don't know if he was in his late 40s, 50s maybe, probably 50s. And he was a single guy who devoted all his time to missions, missionary work um, in a very, very tough area, in, a, in an area that was like 95% LDS and very challenging. He was very kingdom minded and kingdom devoted. That was a guy who was single and he was using it for the Lord. If he had a wife and kids, he would spend less time doing the ministry stuff he was doing. Yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that, yet it's okay to get married. This isn't for everybody. In fact, the implications, as you read all the passages on this, is that most people should probably pursue marriage. That it's a healthy thing. It's a good thing. It's still something God blesses and loves. Nothing wrong with it. So when you ask this question, how can I enjoy my singleness? I don't think you have to enjoy your singleness. I think what you should consider is this. How can I use my singleness the best way for the kingdom? And that would be, if I do pursue relationship, that I pursue it in a godly way, that I don't um, fornicate, I don't uh, create unhealthy relationships, I don't look for a girlfriend or boyfriend who is not um, good marriage material, where I'm when I'm just playing games, and none of those things. But you know, I, I do this for marriage. I do this to honor God. I seek a godly believer who we could be. I could be equally yoked to, and all that other stuff. But your singleness. You have a lot more time on your hands than, than you would if you were married with kids. Use that for ministry. Serve in your local church. Do missions and outreach and things like that that you just can't do later on. Don't just use all your time throwing it away where you have crazy amounts of free time and you do nothing useful with it. That's how you can use your singleness for God. Whether you enjoy it or not, eh, it's, either way, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if you don't enjoy it, you go, Lord, I want to be married, but I'm going to use this for you while I've got it. But I'll still pursue marriage. Nothing wrong with that. How can you grow closer to God during this time? At every season of life, there's always uh, there's always a lot of things we can do to depend on God, to rely on God, to trust God in your moment with all your uncertainties, with all your questions, with your burdens, with your stresses. There's always ways to draw close to God during those times. And I, I hope you find those. Josh Lateral has a question. Uh, Jesus said, forgive others so that God will forgive us. But Paul says, we forgive because God has forgiven us. How do you reconcile those statements? Yeah, Jesus says this, um, and it, I, I like many people, would rather be able to like decrease the intensity of what Jesus says. Um, it doesn't matter whether I want to decrease it or not. But yeah, that's that's how it is. Jesus Jesus said what he said, and there's nothing I can do about it except embrace it because he's the Lord. So he says in the in, at the end of the Lord's prayer. Um, you know, after, after we've said, forgive us our debts, as we also for, have forgiven our debtors, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, 
their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And I don't remember now if there's some hint here in the Greek about the, about the relationship between the if and then causality of things. But what, what Paul writes later is he says, forgive others, um, Um, Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So I, I look at the way Christ forgave and I use that as my inspiration for forgiving others. How can these both be true? Um, so there's, there's a, um, it, okay, here, here's the short answer. It's entirely possible that it's true this way. <clears throat> When you're forgiven in Christ, as First John says, you become a child of God and you begin to live out that new life that you've been given in Christ. That includes good works. It comes naturally out of you. It's a result of your salvation so that I forgive others. Why? Because I've been forgiven. That's my inspiration. And it's even the cause. It wasn't exactly the cause. The cause is new creation, right? But my inspiration for forgiving others is, oh, I know the grace I've been given through Christ. So I extend grace to others. Now, what if I never forgive others? I mean, God, God says, well, I'm not going to forgive you then. Or maybe it's simply saying you're not forgiving others because you haven't been forgiven and it's manifesting that lack of forgiveness so that, um, uh, maybe I could put it this way. When your engine light comes on, if your engine light comes on, something's wrong with your engine. Okay. That, that can be true, but is the engine light causing the problem? No, it's a result of the problem. This can be true of Jesus's statement as well. And is it, I, I <clears throat> maybe, I'm not 100% sure. I lean this way, okay? Consider it for yourself what you think. It may be that you forgiving others is the engine light. If I don't forgive others, boom, the engine light's on. And Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, you won't be forgiven. If that engine light's on, something's wrong with your engine. But the cause is that something's already been wrong with you internally. And maybe that's simply that you're not saved. So your lack of forgiveness there. Now, is it possible a, a true Christian <clears throat> may struggle with forgiveness? I believe so. I think Jesus is making a very broad statement and, that, and it can apply differently in different scenarios. I don't think Christians should think, if I struggle with forgiving anybody on earth, okay, I, was, I was horribly treated, I was molested, raped by this person, and I'm really struggling with forgiveness. I think that they can struggle with those things. It doesn't mean they're automatically not saved, but it may indicate a problem. And that, and if I'm simply an unforgiving person, generally speaking, it may, it may well mean I'm not saved. Um, but I'll also say this, <clears throat> forgiveness should not be seen as um, total restoration of relationship at all times. I can forgive somebody while still saying, I have to have boundaries. This is not a healthy relationship. Um, you've never repented of this. I, I'm, on my part, the offer of forgiveness is there, but you have not brought any sort of change, any sort of willingness, any sort of admission of guilt or anything. And so while my heart, I'm ready to forgive on my side, it's all done on your side. None of it's done. And so the forgiveness is all one-sided. It's not complete. And so that's how God forgives us. Christ offers forgiveness to the world, but it's not complete until they repent and believe. And so I think we forgive in that manner as well. I say this because I think a lot of people get confused about this forgiveness issue. I hope that, that helps. Number 16. <clears throat> okay. This question is from GR who says, how do we lovingly correct someone who believes the deliverance ministry doctrine? People saying they have a spirit of Jezebel that needs to be prayed away. Thank you so much for your ministry. 
Um, I generally don't have enough experience with this situation to give you the best advice. <clears throat> when I've dealt with people who focus on deliverance ministry stuff, I feel like I'm stepping into a new world where there's some doctrines and some beliefs and some practice, maybe a lot of practices that I'm not very familiar with. And so I don't always know how to interact with them. So I would start personally with questions, lots of questions. Hey, help. I just want to understand what you mean by the spirit of Jezebel thing. Um, what do you think a spirit of Jezebel is? Let them talk. Well, what do you think that means? Or what do you mean by that? Ask them questions. And then <clears throat> what I would do anyways, for whatever benefit it might be for you is ask them questions and then perhaps ask them to back it up. Once you've got clarity on what they believe, start with clarity questions. What do you think about this? What about this? What about that? Don't, don't attack it. Don't tell them they're wrong. Just get clarity. I just want to understand where you're coming from. Then ask them for a demonstration in scripture where they see that. Okay. Now I've got clarity. Can you show me where that is from the scripture? Is that in the Bible anywhere? How about this other thing you said? How about that? This to me seems like a loving way to potentially correct because if merely by asking questions, I demonstrate that there's not a biblical foundation for the things that they're saying, that may bring the correction without me doing much of anything other than asking some questions. Um, on the other hand, it will also give them a chance to show me that maybe they have some valid points they're making, but I, I don't have enough experience to give you more than what I would do there. Um, so I hope that you find some benefit in it. Number 17, Matthew Mullen has a question. It says, can you flesh out the filioque, <laughs> the filioque and its implications for the Western church? Thanks, Pastor Mike. Appreciate your ministry. This is kind of complicated. This was, this was like, does the, um, the, the spirit proceed from, this is a Trinitarian type question from the father and the son, or just from the father. Um, um, and yeah, this is, I've looked at the filioque a little bit at Matthew and in my opinion, okay, it's a little bit over my head. Um, really coming down to an ironclad answer one way or the other is just a little beyond me. And so I can't really flesh it out in the, and its implications for the Western church. I'll say this. There are people who anathematized each other over this topic. And that to me, <clears throat> from what I have seen on it, seems like a mistake. Uh, it seems like a mistake. There are... There are, a, there's a type of, um, I'm going to iron out every possible issue that, that can be positive, but when I iron out every possible issue and nuance and I set it in stone and I make it so that anyone who disagrees with me on, on even the little nuances of these really challenging things is therefore, you know, anathematized that, that, that they're, they're not saved or something like that. That's a problem in my opinion. And so I. I don't personally, that's where I currently stand on it. Now, maybe in the future, I'll understand this, this whole filio question better and understand maybe why others would die on that hill when, where I would not. Um, and then I'll come and share that with you guys. I'd be happy to Matthew, give you more information on there, but I never want to speak beyond what I know. And I want to be very honest about that. So yeah, what I have heard about this, the few times I've looked into it, it felt like it was something that people, um, uh, a hill they died on unnecessarily. Yeah. So I, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe and my understanding of it is incomplete. So I'll just say that much and move forward. All right. Danny boy TV says, Mike, can Christians go to Catholic weddings, funerals, and baptisms? Um, so 
this this is going to be a decision you make, of course, not me that I make for Christians. But um, <clears throat> a Catholic wedding is not significantly different than any other wedding you go to, to my knowledge, other than um, they do consider wedding to be a, a marriage to be a sacrament. Okay, that is theologically, I disagree there. Marriage is not a sacrament, nor was it thought to be a sacrament by the early church, by the real early church, um, or the earliest fathers. This, this came later on. And so that function of marriage as a sacrament no. Is it sacred? Absolutely. Is it is it something that's um, say indissoluble? Catholic theology says marriage is indissoluble. I, I don't think that that's a biblical view, actually. I don't think that's accurate. And I have a video on divorce and remarriage, which I'll link below. It's a three-hour survey of everything the Bible teaches on the topic in great detail. Um, so I'll link that below. But does does would I honor a Catholic marriage? Absolutely. A marriage that happened in a Catholic church? Would I be like, yeah, that's a real marriage? Yeah, absolutely. Would I, do I feel as though attending a Catholic marriage, a marriage in a Catholic church, is me affirming Catholicism and all of its views? No, I don't. So for me as a Christian, it checkboxes those things where I go, yeah, look, I think this is a valid marriage. I, 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 and I don't think my attendance is affirming all these things I disagree with, or these couple things I disagree with on this issue. So I could go to a, a wedding at a Catholic church, um, not a problem. How about a funeral? Um, I've actually been to many Catholic funerals because I used to work. <laughs> Here's some random trivia you didn't know you, about me. I used to work for a white dove release company who's, you know, this was a part-time job because ministry is not, you know, you don't expect much in ministry when it comes to pay. And <clears throat> I would work part-time as a, a guy taking a basket of doves, say 20 doves, 40 doves, 50 doves, 100 doves sometimes, to a funeral. <clears throat> and then we would, usually funerals, sometimes weddings, other events, 4th of July stuff. We would open the basket and the doves would fly out and stuff. Um, so I have been to the gravesite, especially of Catholic funerals many times. Would I go to a Catholic funeral? I can at least speak for myself. Well, what am I affirming by attending a funeral? Does anybody think I'm affirming anything? And, uh, no. Does, does even the priest who's there think your attendance of this funeral service is you affirming my theology about purgatory? Um, so the priest says, hey, let us assist them with our prayers because the theology is that that person may not really be in heaven yet. They might be in purgatory and perhaps we can shorten their time in purgatory with our prayers. And so I disagree with that theology very strongly, but what I would probably do personally is attend the service and not join into that moment of prayer for that purpose, because I would simply say, I'm just going to abstain from that. That's not what I think is going on here. I don't agree with that. Um, so, so yeah, I, I feel like I could attend the funeral. What about the baptism? <clears throat> Oh, that one's a little more tricky for me personally, okay? And I'll, and I'll give you the reasoning why, and you guys can make your own decisions. And, and I wouldn't really, this is not a, a hill I would die on to judge Christians over these issues, but um, a baptism is a little different, right? So the, 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 the funeral is there. I'm there to commemorate that person's death. Why would I not go to that? Like, even if I was an atheist, I could go to that. Um, the wedding is there. I am... A, in support of the marriage. I believe that it's a real wedding and all that. So why would I not attend that? The baptism can feel a little different. In Catholicism, baptism is functionally a different thing than it is, in in my understanding, in the scriptures. So baptism becomes necessary for salvation, um, at least in most cases. It also is seen as um, washing original sin away and regenerating the person and beginning their path 
I, I think that that is unbiblical. And I do feel like attending that baptism to me, okay, maybe, maybe to you it doesn't, and that's fine. But to me, it feels like attending that baptism is affirmative of those things. There's no other reason there. I'm not, okay, in a funeral, I'm there to commemorate the, my love for the person, not, not Catholic theology. In a wedding, I'm there to commemorate the marriage. In a baptism, I'm there to commemorate the baptism, which has a lot of theological implications that I, I don't agree with. Um, and so I don't think that I could go in support of that baptism without understanding of baptism. I wouldn't condemn someone else if they made the choice to do that, because again, I, this isn't a hill I would die on. But this is why I see it as different. These three seem like different scenarios. I would not attend the baptism of a friend of mine who I love very much being Catholic. And I might even tell them, I absolutely affirm you believing in Jesus. I, I affirm this. I affirm this. Here's some differences I have. I wish I could be there because I want to support you all I can. But I don't want to support. I don't want to send you a message that something is true that I don't believe is true about something so important as baptism. So that will be my opinion on that. Now you said, can Christians go to those things? Uh, again, I wouldn't, this is, this is the kind of area where I would allow people to express their own conscience in different ways and not judge others for their views on those issues. Yeah. <clears throat> 19, Julius Cooper says, I've been reading occult books to understand the worldview of a friend in the occult. Books like Kibalion, Hermeticism, Mediumship. Any advice for reading these books without getting contaminated? Um, okay, so I do think a minority of Christians are perfectly right to do such things, read such books. I think the majority of Christians, it's not healthy. You have no reason to. There's maybe a weird, morbid curiosity you have about those issues, uh, but you're not ministering to anybody. You're not preparing for anything. But when I was you know, outreaching to an Islamic guy, I read the Quran. So I can understand it better. So I can be conversant and talk to him. And I would recommend if you're going to be outreaching to a group of people, it helps to be aware of, of what they believe. It does. Um, now, you don't have to. You might do outreach to someone who's part of the occult and you never learn anything about the occult other than your conversations. And that's fine. What I'm suggesting, though, is that there is space for learning those things. And um, there can be a lot of benefit in it. You know, when I've done videos on the, the Mother God cult, which is called the World Mission Society Church of God. And they believe that this Korean woman, Zeng Gilja, is she's in her late 70s now, and she is she is God the mother literally living in Korea, South Korea. <clears throat> and you need to like, you should come there and worship her and stuff. Um, all sorts of weird things. They think that Jesus came back earlier in the 1900s and lived the life of this guy, uh, An Song Hong, and <clears throat> that he died. <laughs> and um, that was the second coming. Which, it, which is also the Holy Spirit. Or, or No, he was the Father. <coughs> he was the Holy Spirit. I forget right now. Anyway, I have videos on that. I read up a bunch of stuff on those guys so I can make content to outreach to them. So let me say, Julius, my thought is this. A, is your continued reading still focused on outreach? Or has it shifted to something else? If it's still on outreach, maybe continue doing it. If you find that you've shifted, that there's something else going on here, there's something you know, your purpose, your initial drive of, of outreach and understanding and evangelism, that that's, that that's been replaced with something else, anything else, even just curiosity, then, then why bother? Why, why not focus on true things and good things and noble things? Um, like Philippians tells us B, I would say, um, you are not being negatively impacted by these things, these lies. They're not affecting you negatively. 
And so uh, I had this, this actually happened to me when I was, when I was listening to a whole bunch. Okay. This is a totally different topic, right? I'm not talking about the occult, but there was a, a particular teacher I was listening to who I was listening to a bunch of his content. Um, and he's a Christian, at least it seems to be, but has a lot of problems. Um, basically after listening to many hours of his content, I started feeling like it was affecting me. He would so just use scripture in any way he felt. And it was weird. And his, uh, his, he was a really good speaker and he was really like uh, endearing and really drew you along. And I'm trying to understand him to dissect his teaching, to be able to teach on what he's doing. But I found after listening to many hours of him, I actually was, was having a harder time just thinking clearly about the Bible. It was the weirdest thing. Okay. It didn't ruin me or anything, but I felt this unhealthy effect. And that was when I was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done listening to this. I'm not going to compromise my understanding of scripture, my, me, myself spiritually in order to understand and dig into these things. So if at any point you feel that the, the B I said was, if it's messing you up, stop. Okay. If it's messing you up in some way, move on to something else because, um, that's not, I don't think that's evidence that, that you're not being sort of empowered by God to continue that that work is that it's messing you up. And, um, <clears throat> and then finally, uh, advice for reading these books is just good critical thinking skills, being able to pull out what are the core doctrines and the core teachings, finding out the most relevant stuff that you could then bring to someone to talk to them about. You may find that that person doesn't even, doesn't really read those books, doesn't really think that much about them. They're, you know, as a Christian, we're very, we're book people. I read the Bible. It's like, I take it, man. You show me the Bible says something. I'm like, yep, I believe it. I trust that you can hold me to that because that's what the Bible says. But there are people who perhaps in the occult, you'll read something, go, well, look at this. And they may just go, oh yeah, I don't really follow that part. <laughs> so my thought is, uh, you may find that some of this time is, is not as fruitful as you would, would like it to be because you were thinking that this was like their Bible when it was really more like a, a, a loose guide to them. So find out if, what books and readings and things really matter to that person? What is at the core of their beliefs? Because it may or may not even be these books. And you might be kind of wasting your time a little bit on that. So yeah, those are my uh, thoughts. All right, Nelly, last question for today says, does God still communicate through verses taken out of context? Some say yes, due to his unique ways, but I'm unsure. Um, this is a dangerous question. <laughs> If I say no, I am, in a sense, I could be potentially limiting God. Um, there's nothing in principle wrong with God taking a verse where um, I'm, I read about Abraham and he's like, Abraham, you will have a son. And then maybe someone's been struggling with that for a long time. And they feel as though the Holy Spirit is telling them, you're going to have a son too. Like, is there any reason why God can't do that? I don't, I don't think there really is, but here's why that's dangerous. Lots of people do that all the time. And, and if God shows you a scripture that maybe it replied very differently, and then all of a sudden it means something very different to you, he could do that. That's certainly possible, but there's, there's two problems. One is you do that. And we know you do that. God can do that, but you actually do that. 
we read the Bible and we come up with our own understanding of it all the time. We easily rip things out of context and we see this in what kind of groups? Cult groups and false religions and manipulative leaders and bad theological circles. They do this all the time. They take the verses and they take a meaning out of it that's not really there. So that's like, okay, could God? Sure, but do when we see this happening, it's usually a red flag that something's really wrong. Um, <clears throat> and the second issue is you simply cannot bind any other Christian to things that you got from the Bible out of context because you're like, well, God showed me this when I read that verse. If I look at that verse and it doesn't mean that in context, I don't have to believe you. You certainly can't bind other people to it. Lots of weird groups have gone off the wall on this stuff. God might privately do it, but we, so, so I would never rule out that God might speak to someone that way, but we got to look at the track record. You know, it, it's kind of like if I eat food out of a trash can, it might be fine and healthy, but you've got to look at the track record too and go, yeah, but there's a pretty good chance you know, that something's wrong, that you're eventually going to get sick. Lots of people can get sick that way. Uh, we, we see how many people get spiritually sick by doing this with scripture. And then they all think God's speaking to them. Like Jehovah's Witnesses do this with the Bible. Their, their, their organization does this with the Bible. Uh, Joseph Smith did this with the Bible. But God has revealed to me the real meaning of these things. The World Mission Society, Church of God, the Mother God cult I mentioned earlier, they do this with the Bible. People all over twist the scriptures to their own destruction. In fact, that's even a warning in the text of the Bible. It says that, they're, that untaught and unstable people, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. How would you ever know you're, God's really speaking to you that way? Is it possible? Yeah, but it's it's most it's more likely you're just twisting the Bible, and so knowing that, I would have an abundance of caution with anybody saying I read this verse and I got this out of it. I would be very cautious, if nothing else, to say. The only time I would really be open to it is if they go, I know it doesn't mean that. I would never use it that way for other people. But I really feel like the Lord ministered something special to me in that moment. But then I'm never going to use this thing that I think God showed me to go against any clear teaching of Scripture, to go against the the the, the collective counsel and wisdom of the of the believers around me. Um, and then at least there's some safeguards in place for that. So th there's my <clears throat> my opinion on that. Um, and the only other thing I'll say is. Um, Pastors will take verses out of context all the time to teach true things. And so you might say God's, you know, so they'll, they'll, they'll use a verse and then they'll go, well, so God, you know, is showing us this. And the thing they say is true about God, but it didn't come from that verse. And I was, you could be like, well, see, God's using a verse out of context to communicate something. Um, this is like the baby in the bathwater situation. I love the, the, the truth. That's the baby. But the bathwater, that pastor should have just found a verse that actually taught that. Okay, this is a bad practice. We don't want to endorse this. We don't want to encourage this because eventually it will lead to him teaching something unbiblical because he's in the habit of taking the Bible out of context and his congregation is in the habit of believing things that are taken out of context. And so what's going to keep them and protect them from someone who offers them something that's not true? Uh, nothing will. Because they have never learned to study the scriptures well. In fact, this is something I think pastors have to understand is when you teach the Bible poorly, even if your theology is good, but the way you get to it is regularly fishy, squishy, murky, <laughs> distorted, out of context. Your people are trained to believe things that are not true about in, in the use of scripture. They're trained to take the Bible out of the context and not notice it. 
So when the, when the Jehovah's Witness knocks on their door, they're not ready for that. They're not ready to look at the verse in context and go, yeah, it doesn't say that. You got to be able to do that. Otherwise, where's the protection? So those are my thoughts, y'all. Thanks so much for joining. Um, I'd like to uh, close this in prayer. And hopefully, you know, YouTube keeps cutting off my prayer. It's not me. It's YouTube. Okay. I wait till it ends and I, then I hit end. And then YouTube's like, we're just going to delete the last 10 seconds. So we'll see if it does that today. Hopefully not. But uh, Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. Um, there is great safety in understanding what it says in context without distorting it, without adding to it, without taking away from it. And so much of what we hear is exactly that. Um, whether it's a pirate Bible or the doctrines of the Mormon church um, and the scriptures that are used out of context to support things like baptizing the dead and stuff like that, we just pray that you give us discernment and wisdom to keep going back to the word of God, to not just know something's wrong, but to know why it's wrong, to know why that's not what that scripture says, so that we would be people who are bringing gold out for others, that are constantly sharing good truths and right things, um, like uh, apples of gold and settings of silver, Lord, that words, the fitting words spoken at the right time, that we'd be like, we'd be like that with the word of God to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.